RNMD is a show about hospital relationships from the perspective of doctors and nurses. You're very smart, and we know that you would never come to a podcast for medical advice. So obviously, call your non-podcasting doctor and nurse team if you need any medical care. Oh, and we should also mention that we don't represent any hospital at all, ever. Okay, start the thing. of RNMD, a show about doctors and nurses working together in this mad world of medicine. I'm your nurse host, Abby, and today we have a very special episode. This topic is a little controversial, maybe, um, and it's interesting to me. I'm going to be honest with you. I think if you follow this show or any of the content that I put out, you're probably not thrilled with the job that capitalism has done when we're talking about our patients or our personal safety or the way that we've been treated during COVID. Today, I have the host from M&M Podcast, Marks and Medicine Podcast. He is a doctor working in Pennsylvania. I'm not going to use his name because I don't want to get him into any trouble until he's comfortable using his name. Um, but we discussed different options. Um, what do other countries do? Is it a success? Is it not a success? This episode we recorded for a long time. <laughs> it went on because there are so many different, it's a very complicated issue. There are so many different facets. So um, this is going to be at least a two-parter, maybe even a three-parter. So um, I'm going to put his podcast in the description below. I'm going to um, tag them as well in case you want to check that out. And I think it's just important to learn about these ideas, learn about these systems, even if you don't agree with some of them, right? Um, I, I have a feeling I'm going to get some emails and say, you know, you discuss communism on this podcast. What are you crazy? Um, I think it is important, even if you don't agree with something, to learn about it. I think we have an obligation to say this system is a failure. What what we have right now currently is a failure when it comes to healthcare. And we can look globally and see what other people have done in the past and are doing and try to improve upon our system. Um, and that way we can try to, you know, safely burn this thing down. Okay, so without further ado, here we go. Talking in person with real voices instead of um, I words know. on the phone. I know. IG friends. IG BFFs, I right? I know. Nice to see you. Yeah. Yeah. Nice to see you. Um, okay. So we started talking a little bit about this topic because I know nothing about... <laughs> you have a podcast, right? I do. It turns out. Yes. I'm a content creator also. Yes. Yes. I don't want to give too much. Why don't you just say what you're going to say about yourself? Because I don't want to like out you with oh. the with your facility. <laughs> Uh, yeah, always, um, always danger there. Well, uh, I'm a PGY four about to graduate anesthesia resident in, uh, a Western PA, uh, residency that probably gives it away, nice. but whatever. Um, about to graduate, going to do regional fellowship, 
we have a podcast, me and at the Waffle Ho and our boy Barbacoa E Big Red. Um, we should you'll you'll post those, I'm sure, right? Some proper yeah. linkage. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we're a podcast. We look at healthcare through kind of a Marxist lens, through a socialist lens. We try to interpret the current state of things through, you know, an anti-capitalist way of thinking. Uh, we've we've heard pretty much our entire lives about how, yeah, like healthcare is so expensive. I have no idea why. It's so complicated. And in my mm-hmm. in my conception, in my study of it, it's not that complicated. It's that there is a small minority of extremely rich, ultra-powerful people who control the mechanisms through which money flows. They control how healthcare works. They control uh, the incomings and outgoings of medications, doctors, surgeries, technology, everything you can imagine. It's a very small group of people who are making all these decisions, not the people who are actually taking care of patients who should be making these decisions because we understand what patients need. We understand what, what, um, whatever site we're working at needs, whether it's a clinic, a hospital, doesn't a dialysis center, like whatever you can think of, we understand what we need and what patients need. So the whole point of our project is to get healthcare workers and of course other people to sort of open their eyes and see like, well, if it's workers who own and control what's happening, there will more likely be better outcomes because it's not people in suits, administrators, executives, people who have never been in an ICU before, people who don't understand how this shit works. They shouldn't be the ones making these decisions. It should be us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, this is a hot topic right now, not just in healthcare, right? I mean, capitalism is, is being evaluated by a lot of people right now. Um, And is it good? And I think, you know, the popular consensus right now is no, probably not. Um, and we saw that during COVID specifically with the hospital systems. Um, you know, I guess, where do you go from there, though? You can acknowledge it and then and then finding the solution is the difficult part. Um, let, let me ask you a question. Do you think these I, I completely agree with you, by the way, I just uh, posted something recently about the hospital CEOs that are making multi multi millions mm-hmm. and they're claiming poverty, you know, yeah. because of elective surgery and all this bullshit. Um, do you think that it is a conscious and coordinated effort on their part to uh, control the money and do you think they sit in in meetings I guess is what I and, and say to themselves among themselves how do we keep control of this right um there's a current of people even on the left wing who conceive of this as some sort of like evil cabal kind of thing it's like people who are you know like rubbing their hands together and be like hmm how do we fuck over those workers like that kind of thing mr burns yeah literally yes mr burns yeah. exactly <laughs> um i i don't think that's exactly what is happening i think what's mm-hmm. happening is that um we tend to think through the lens of individuals and what we as marxists like to do is look through systems right look through history to give us context for the present and to look at systems so if you look at systems you would understand that capitalism creates mechanisms and ways of life, uh, structured ways of living that people fall into, right? And over, overarching, the overarching structure would be 
a simple question. Are you a worker or are you, are you an owner, right? If you're an mm-hmm. owner, you get to make decisions, right? Or if you're an administrator working, you know, under an owner, you know what I'm saying? If you're a worker, um, you just kind of got to listen to whoever's above you. They're going to tell you what to do. They're going to tell you what to wear. They're going to tell you how much you work every week. They're going to tell you what your day-to-day looks like, all this kind of stuff, right? Um, we, the, What I mean by we're funneled into these structures is the capitalists, right? The owners, their goal when you're running a business is to make money, is to make profit, right? That's what capitalism is predicated on. It's predicated on profit. Um, people talk about greed. Greed is beside the point too, right? Again, it's not like they're thinking of how, oh, like how much more money can we make this year because I want to go on more vacations or I want another BMW or like whatever. Like maybe some of them are doing that. But again, it's beside the point. The point is that if they don't make that profit, right? Let's take some giant hospital system, any giant hospital system. If they don't make that profit and they get outcompeted by another giant hospital system, um, they go bankrupt. They go under. They are no longer the owner because this company may not exist anymore, right? So it's not a matter of them being greedy, sitting in their boardrooms and figuring out ways to fuck over workers. Maybe some of them in their minds, but again, beside the point, what they're trying to do is stay alive. That is what the capitalist system requires of any business. It doesn't matter if it's in healthcare, if it's in food, if it's in clothes, car, it doesn't matter. The point of capitalism, of that specific, what we call mode of production or way of producing things, the point is to make profit. At even at the expense of human life. And as you said uh, very clearly, COVID taught us that extremely well, right? That was very mm-hmm. eye-opening for people because they expect in an industry like healthcare, especially, that, I don't know, like maybe we could even pretend to care about people, pretend to care about healthcare workers, right. not have healthcare, not have nurses wearing fucking glad bags uh, as PPE yeah. and like science that, experiment that was- goggles. That was you probably, right? <laughs> That was my hospital system, yeah. There you go, exactly. Yeah. Say, uh, and I, I saw that a lot of places, especially in New York City. I guess that's where you are, but um, I saw that a yeah. lot of places. Um, so it kind of, kind of ripped the mask off, and people were like, "Holy shit! Like, wow, this really is kind of all about money, not in the ways that people mm-hmm. expect." Like I said, it's about money in the sense that these giant hospitals need to make profit to survive, even the nonprofits. Okay. Some of you out there are probably mm-hmm. like, Oh, what about the nonprofits? Oh, the nonprofits are probably trying to profit maybe even more than some of the four more. Yes. Yeah, definitely more. That yeah. is a misnomer. Maybe we could talk about that later, but yeah, the, the, the idea is that if they don't make the profit, somebody else will, and they'll get out competed and they'll die. And that is what keeps this system churning. Um, not so much greed. Yes competition mm-hmm. and, and this is kind of a funny thing about capitalism is like competition is what is is like one of the motors of this system well unfortunately what does competition create in the end always invariably it creates monopoly because once mm-hmm. all of the competitors are outcompeted there's one person left right that that is the the kind of irony in and sort of what we call ideology the the um kind of what you're taught in a kind of a propagandized way, right? We think that competition is this virtue or value that we place on this very high pedestal because I don't know, like keeps prices down and like keeps products being better because you have to compete like, yeah, whatever. Okay. 
but innovation, in, innovation, yeah. exactly this kind of stuff. But in the end, what competition actually creates um, is monopoly. Um, and we see that mm-hmm. clearly in terms like the tech industry. I mean, okay, we're talking about social media. There's only a couple of them and they're massive and they control um, kind of like what's able to be said on the internet. Again, we saw this very clearly with uh, with Trump a couple months ago. I mean, dude's not on Facebook. He's not on Twitter. He's been banned from all these things. Whether you think that's a good thing or not, that's I'm not really making an argument either way. The point being that very small number of people, we call that oligopoly, but functionally a monopoly because their goals are pretty much the same. Uh, and healthcare, I think, functions in a similar way. Yeah. Okay. So let's take a step back. Um, I did some crowdsourcing. I asked a lot of, uh, you know, it's mostly nurses. I have some doctors on my, uh, my Instagram too. Um, but I just said like, what do you think about this? Because I mean, even me who is very open-minded to learning about new systems, it's scary to say on your social media, why not communism? Why not? You know, let's consider this, right? Because it has such a negative connotation. Um, and I think that a lot of the responses that I got seem to not understand, fully understand even the definition of it. Um, not to also not to understand the definition of socialism and also combined like a national healthcare system with socialism or with, you know, it's all kind of bundled together. So if you wouldn't mind, just give us a, a down and dirty like definition of these things. Okay. I would also say people don't understand what capitalism is either. I think we, we all kind of think we know what it is, but we don't actually. Um, so let's do that one too. Add it to the okay. pile. <laughs> Uh, well, as, as I kind of briefly or not so briefly mentioned, capitalism, we, I kind of place these things under what's called modes of production or ways of producing, basically, right? So capitalism is a mode of production, a way of producing, right? Ways that we organize the ways that we produce our necessities of life, right? And it's a system that does that predicated on a profit motive, that's about the simplest definition I can give. All of the things that go into production, whether it's commodity production, like things that are bought and sold, like, you know, like cars and, you know, uh, food or books or whatever, the like things in a capitalist model are produced for profit with the intention of selling something to make money off of it, right? Socialism as a mode of production um, oh, and uh, the the other part of capitalism I should mention too, what's important is who owns these things, right? Who owns the mechanisms of production, things that are needed to create things, right? So in the healthcare context, the means of production, we call them, would be things like hospitals, the electronic medical record, the computers, the exam rooms, like all of these things that we sort of don't really think about as uh, producing stuff. Well, Every day we produce healthcare, right? Like as a nurse, me as a as an anesthesia resident, we produce healthcare, as in like outcomes or um, you know <laughs> cures or whatever you want to call it. We produce it using these things. Well, um, you're a nurse, you're employed by a hospital, uh, or you know we'll, we'll say that in general. I'm an, I'm a resident, I'm employed, so we don't own any of this stuff, right? All we do is use these things to produce healthcare. So where does that money go? Well, the money that's made from the th- from the value that we create for the hospital 
it goes back to the owners. That's how profit is is uh, is given out, right, to shareholders, right, to owners. So we don't see any of those profits, right? If you work at any business, if you're an employee, you don't see any of those profits. All you see is a wage or a salary, right? So any extra production you do, it doesn't matter. You're still getting paid the same just for time, pretty much. So under capitalism, you have an owner who owns all of these things you need to produce things. Any profits made go back to them. The workers are just there to make the owners money, more or less. Under socialism, those means of production, right, all those same things that I was talking about are owned and controlled by the workers themselves. So this is kind of what I was saying initially. Um, healthcare workers understand what patients need. We went to school for this. We do it every day. Who understands it better than us? Nobody. Some some dipshit in a in a in the, on the thirteenth floor who's wearing a suit? No. Um, somebody who's never spoken to a patient outside of like like an interview to for like a, or a photo op or something? No. These people don't understand healthcare in terms that we do. Um, so why should they be making decisions about healthcare? For example, why should again some dipshit on the thirteenth floor be telling you? Um, I think it's appropriate that you should have three ICU patients, not two. They're telling me, I think it's appropriate that turnover time is 15 minutes, not 30. Um, or telling, you know, you can think of any example you want, but this is the reality. You, you are told things by people who don't understand the work that you do, which just looking at it from an outside perspective doesn't make any fucking sense. And that's any job. Right, it's not just healthcare. It's any job. Uh, I think about like food workers. Even I think about people who work in hospitality. I think about people who work um, any creative job too. A lot of times, it's people above them who make all the money. But the people who actually create the things—movies, music—it's the people who are just employed by the big companies. Um, well, anyway, so I guess I kind of got on a tangent. Well. Socialism being that the workers, not the owners, the people who are not interacting with the patients in a healthcare setting. It's the workers who own those means of production and control them and are able to, the workers together, creating uh, that healthcare system together. Let me, I'm sorry, let me interrupt you. So what would that look like? I mean, I mean, is there an example of it? What does that look like? Is there like a board of healthcare workers? Is there, you know, I mean, because that they could get messy if there's not one person in charge. I would say that it's, uh, the reason it is so messy to even talk about is because you could do it a bunch of different ways. Mm -hmm. um, say you're at a community, let's say you're at a community hospital or something, or even better, let's say you're at like a multi-specialty group, like physician group. Um, mm -hmm. Instead of say... I don't know, like five people who are on the board, right? Like five physicians who are on the board. They make all the decisions for the business, the operations and whatnot. And everybody else just has to kind of say, all right, it is what it is. I'm just an employee. That would be like a more traditional private practice model. If you wanted to create a truly socialist model of group practice, all of these physicians would be part owners, probably equal owners with equal voting rights on decision-making, right? And again, it gets complicated because you could, you could divide this business into committees, 
where people can join committees that they're interested in. So that way people don't get bogged down in like the nitty gritty that they don't actually care about. Um, that's why it's hard to talk about is because there's a zillion ways you can do it. But the idea, the point being that people have decision-making, they have self, they have the ability to self-determine, right? Um, just the ability to vote on things that go on for the, for the company is <laughs> that is like above and beyond anything that most workers get now, because most of the time what happens, you just get told what to do. You don't like, get many opportunities to actual make meaning, actually make meaningful changes in your workplace. Even though sometimes you get asked and it's kind of just this like, you know, well, what do you guys think we should do? What changes should we make? And then nobody actually like follows through or listens to anything you say, unless you're in a union, I guess that'd be nice. I wish I was, but I'm not. Um, yeah. Some, some of the attending physicians that I work with, they are on committees within like my hospital system, for example, and they do get asked. Nursing is traditionally never, ever mm-hmm. invited to anything ever. And it's a big problem within nursing. We are never given a seat at the table and we are the direct patient care advocate. We are there with the patient all day and no one ever asks us our opinion. And doesn't that piss you off? Like you knowing that, Hey, (laughs) we're the people at the fucking bedside who knows these patients better than us. You know, I mean, to me, like you, you talk to nurses who are not understanding of, you know, socialism, like that's fine. There's a lot of cold war propaganda that's still like percolating throughout our time and like that's okay oh we'll we'll get to it we'll get to it <laughs> yeah. but, but if you truly like what i would say to them like in a one sentence thing like if you want to make changes and feel like you have a seat at the table um it's socialism because that's literally allowing the workers ownership and therefore decision making and control in the enterprise and again you can do it in a bunch of different ways you can do one person one vote you can do it by kind of proportional shares, blah, blah, blah. We could talk about that forever. But the the primary point is if you want decision-making at work, it's ownership. That's, that's really uh, the ultimate. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now let's go to the communist side of it. Like I, this topic, I know nothing about. So okay. I, I need a definition on this. Um, my one-liner for communism, it's, it's fun. I like it. It's a moneyless, classless, stateless society. That is the easiest way I can put it. Moneyless, uh, straightforward. Classless. Okay, what do we mean when we talk about class? Um, class in America is oftentimes equated with income. And I want to be very clear that class does not mean income. Um, class is a relationship to production. You'll find that Marxists and communists talk about production a lot (laughs) because we find it to be one of the more basic uh, social structures. The way that we produce the necessities of life, they don't determine everything else, but they do inform them in some way. The way that we produce our necessities inform how we form our political structures, for example. Um. And the way that we produce those necessities, that depends on the technology of the time, which depends on the scientific knowledge of the time, your geography, the resources you have available. It's very complex, but you'll hear us talk about production a lot because it informs, yeah, your what type of politics exist, what type of social relations exist, what type of culture can exist, 
So that's why we talk about production a lot and the um, economy. So um, communism, when we're talking about class, class is a relationship to production. What does that mean? Again, are you an owner? Are you a worker? That's the primary kind of class distinction in our society. Um, Do you own these means of production or do you work on them and make other people rich? And for most people, for most nurses, most and all residents and whatever, we're all workers. That's why when we talk about solidarity, when we talk about there's more of us than them, when we talk about uh, we have common interests, um, why are we fighting? <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. we really have the same interest, which is we want more representation. We want to be heard. We want changes to happen that are, be- that are better for ourselves and for patients. Um, and the people who are not allowing this to happen is not each other. Again, it's these owners. It's these people who do make all these decisions and unfortunately make decisions based on profit, not on human life, right? Not on what's best mm-hmm. for patients. And you'll hear language veiled in like patient outcomes and like whatever else, mm-hmm. but no, it's all in the language of managed care. It's all in the language of uh, producing more value for the system, all this shit. So mm-hmm. you'll hear it talked about as good for patients, but it's actually just good for maintaining the system. So that's class. Stateless, that means the state, like capital S, the state, those are like the, that's like the administrative functions of the government, right? When you, when I hear the state, I think of the police, the judiciary, the army, uh, all of the mechanisms that uh, administrate the function of government. That is the state. So communism, I want to be clear, this is probably something we will never see in our lifetime, okay? I don't mm-hmm. think, you know, the Soviet Union didn't achieve communism, uh, China has not achieved communism. Cuba has not. Vietnam, all these countries, they are working toward this society, but they are not there or have, they're not there yet or did not reach that. And we'll talk about some distinctions later, I'm sure. But communism is kind of very theoretical for me. It's something that probably will not exist for maybe hundreds of years, thousands of years, if ever. Um, that's how I think about it. So it, it's it's a it's an idea that can be linked to you know a political structure, an economic structure, uh, production, et cetera. Yes. What what do you think about uh, like in our society, for example, we don't really make stuff here anymore. I mean, so I mean, how does that apply? Isn't that problematic? Um, when you <laughs> have a situation where all of the owners of business in the 1970s are starting to look around and realize, hey, the return on profit is low in the industrial sector, right? This is after Mm -hmm. um, World War II in the 40s and 50s, where industry was absolutely booming, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Profits in the industrial sector were six, eight, 10%, crazy shit. This is what allowed unions to really start to gain power initially was the fact that Hey, like industrial productivity is immense. Like, look at all of the these new technologies that are that are uh, saving on labor costs, uh, the profits that are being able to be realized because of this. The workers started to realize, well, hey, part of it's because they're treating us like fucking shit. 
Um, part of it's because they don't pay anything. Part of it's because we're not getting any share of that pie. Mm-hmm. So that allowed kind of union organizing to to gain that power, to be able to get that higher wage, to be able to get those benefits and whatnot. Um, in the 70s, after the kind of the, the revolutionary 60s, I guess I'll call them, in the 70s, you started to have a decrease in industrial productivity. So, I, I mean, we don't we don't make things anymore. And I guess you're kind of leading into my real question, which is, uh, so this happened before, basically. We're repeating history. Mm-hmm. This happened before, right? We, we had these fat cats at the top, and, and then the workers demanded more. Uh, and then they organized, and that was great. And then the people at the top again found a loophole and you know i'm from michigan for example i watched the auto industry die in front of my face mm-hmm. um and and i'm sure that that has something to do with the fact that they don't want to pay they don't want to deal with the unions they can send the jobs to mexico and and exploit workers there instead um so so industrial productivity fell dramatically in the 70s for various reasons so what ended up happening was um, you got to look at this again, always through that lens of the profit motive. So all of these industrial capitalists, when they start to see potential profits declining, well, their intention is to always stay on top, right? To always uh, to not get outcompeted or to maintain their position of power. So what did they do? Well, um, you've heard about diversifying your portfolio, I'm sure. And this definitely applied to these people. So instead of reinvesting in industry, um, a lot of these capitalists put their money in finance. And you saw this incredible boom in the finance sector, finance capitalism in the 1970s. Um, You hear this term neoliberalism a lot. This is kind of the start, probably the late 70s, early 80s. There was that oil crisis that was happening during that time. I'm not going to go into detail. Stagflation. Uh, during this this time too, so you had an, a, an economy that was very sluggish, industrial profits that were extremely low. So these owners, these capitalists, decided. Well, some of them decided, instead of reinvesting into the industrial sector, into manufacturing jobs in the United States, let's invest that money into finance, right? And what does finance produce? Um, nothing. <laughs> finance is a mechanism through which money moves around. Uh, mostly for the richest five to ten percent of people uh, in the in in America, or you know, whatever five ten richest mm-hmm. richest people. Mm-hmm. Um, the other industrial capitalists decided, well, I'll reinvest some money into finance and real estate and you know insurance and like this kind of shit, the mm-hmm. fire sector, mm-hmm. and I'll take my in- industrial uh, portfolio. And I'm going to move it overseas, like you said. We move it to to Mexico. We're going to move it to South Asia, somewhere where, um, somewhere where we can save on labor costs, which is the only way we're going to increase those industrial profits again. Otherwise, mm-hmm. we're gonna we're gonna shutter. We're gonna go out of business, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than saying maybe we should restructure how the business looks and give ownership to workers. What these capitalists said was, we want to maintain our power. We want to maintain our ownership. The only way we can do that is to cut labor costs. And the best way to do that is to pay people a couple cents an hour to do work. 
That's it. Right. Right. I, I love your point because, um, like you're saying these, the, someone at the top, what they're doing is they're protecting themselves ultimately, right? Yeah. They want to keep power. They want to keep their job. They, and, and especially if you are, I've learned a lot about finance in the last like, you know, two years. Um, especially if you start to invest in, in finance instead of industry or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, now what do you have to do every quarter? You have to prove that you have better outcomes, right? You made more money. you got better production. You opened this, you did this, you released this, et cetera. You have to constantly, the stock price has to constantly go up. Otherwise you will get fired. They will mm-hmm. take you out of that position. Line go right? up. That, that our entire world is pretty much linked to line go up at this point. And that's the sick reality because we mm-hmm. all suffer for it, even though, um, I don't mean to cut you off, but we all suffer no, no, to no. make this line go up. Like, Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, just look at look at the pandemic. We're telling people um, you have to go back to work. You just have to. Uh, yeah. There, I'm sorry. We, there's no other way we can do this. Uh, and what that really means is we won't make money unless you all work because uh, this is something we didn't talk about yet. But all value comes from labor. Uh, I I don't want to mm-hmm. get down this road. If you want to talk about it, we can. <laughs> I don't want to go down this road. But all value comes from labor. A uh, quick example of this that I made uh, on a podcast episode. If you own a factory, good for you. That's awesome. If you don't have anybody to work in the factory, it's kind of pointless, right? Mm-hmm. So where does all of the right. value from the shit that the factory produces come from? It comes from labor. I'm just going to make that quick mm-hmm. point. Um, and I didn't mean to interrupt you. You go ahead. I, I think you're right. And and an example of this is uh, like what we talk about unions in the hospital uh, from a nursing standpoint. I'm part of a union, um, 1199. And... Yeah, there uh, we'll go. We'll get there, too, because I I, I'm very pro union. Mm -hmm. I love the union. There are problems with unions, too. There's there's a you know, I mean, there's a whole team at my hospital just to fight the union, you know. Um, But the the point is that, like you said, you have a hospital. That's great. You have patients. That's great. But if you don't have nurses, what are you going to do? That's it. (laughs) You're done. Um, and, and especially because of COVID and not just my union, not just my hospital, but many, many, many hospital systems in this area, they are disgusted with how they were treated. And many of them are organizing to strike. And you can only, you know, I don't want to get into that. It's hard to strike. You have to wait and et cetera. Mm. Um, but they are making the steps to eventually organize to strike because at some point, what else do you do? I mean, if you are being told as an ICU nurse that you're going to have four patients and not just once in a while, consistently for months while somebody's making $25 million at the top, I mean, something's got to give at some point. I mean, how do you take the system seriously at that point? You know, yes. uh, I think like, um, people think that like socialism or communism or whatever, um, it's like idealistic, right? It's like, oh, mm-hmm. looks good on paper, but in theory doesn't quite work. Well, what suggests that this system works? Like, mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't have a lot of evidence to suggest that for regular working people, this system works well at all. Um, mm-hmm. Because we've all, we've all heard some of these statistics. 40% of Americans can't afford a $400 emergency expense. That is the most disgusting statistic. It sticks in my head because it is absolutely disgusting. Almost half of the people in this country can't afford a $400 expense. That's not that much money if you think Mm -hmm. about it. 
If you own a car, um, well, you're probably going to have one of those uh, at some point. If you own a house, you're probably going to have a roof leak, something wrong with the AC, like, I don't know, fucking termites or ants or some shit crawling around. Uh, if you asbestos, asbe- yeah. <laughs> there you go. Some a yeah. little bit of dust poisoning, whatever. I mean, any anything you can imagine. Four hundred dollars, not that much. Um, mm-hmm. And then you talk about health insurance be- taking up 25 percent of people's income for a premium. Not to mention the deductible you have to hit for them to start paying for anything. Not to mention the copay that you have to pay for a doctor visit or prescriptions. Not to mention the coinsurance that you have to pay after you meet your deductible. Not to mention the out-of-pocket costs that are invariably going to come. I mean, this is what I'm talking about. Why do people think that this system works? It doesn't. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. it kills people. Um, mm-hmm. The PNHP, the Physicians for National Health Plan, came out with a study last year. I believe it was about 45,000, 50,000 deaths every year in the United States that are due to a lack of access to health care. That, that are totally preventable, totally preventable. That, okay, 300 some million people in the US, 45,000, maybe not that many people. It should be zero. There should be mm-hmm. zero preventable deaths. That should be the benchmark, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's what disgusts me so much and that's, what, uh, that's why I'm so passionate about it is because it is obvious that the system is not working for most regular, it works great for um, bougie urban specialist doctors, works great for administrators and executives in hospitals. Uh, for everybody else, it doesn't really work. Um, mm-hmm. So that's why I'm you know, such an advocate for change because we so much tend to get into these kind of, well, it's just the way it is. Uh, why? It, it doesn't have to be. It shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, I, I think there's a misconception if, when you, when you start traveling outside of the United States, you go to Europe or you have friends who are, you know, from other places. Um, I think you quickly realize that America, Americans are very insulated and they have blinders on almost to what the rest of the world is doing. Right. Um, and so we think, well, we pay a lot, but we're the best, right? USA, we're the best. Um, and that's so obviously not true. I mean, our patient outcomes are terrible compared to other countries who have cheaper systems. So, um, yeah, I don't think it's working. And, and I think the interesting part about that too, is people will say we can't change, you know, this, this is our system. This is a good system. But then when you really start talking about specific examples of how it doesn't work, most people will agree with you. Right. They'll say, you know, I don't have access. Oh, I paid this much for my prescription. My grandmother, you know, it couldn't have surgery, et cetera. And, and then and then you say, well, see, here's the example of <laughs> the system. is it, not working. It starts <laughs> to radicalize people. That's a good example because people don't really think about it that much until they're forced to. Right. Like. Mm-hmm. Yes, anybody who's never interacted with the healthcare system, they, I mean, like, why would they have to think about it? Some like 20 something, sure. they'll just be like, uh, I don't know. I mean, yeah, America, number one, we're the best. Okay. I mean, thanks. But then you talk to somebody <laughs> whose grandmother yeah. who had hip surgery and, um, now is like coming out with an ICU bill and, you know, mm-hmm. all these out of pocket expenses on top of their deductible. And then you're looking at it, you're like, wow, um, this this fucking sucks actually sorry can i can i curse oh yeah big time okay. yes, yes, yes yeah uh <laughs> this fucking sucks yeah like wh- why do we do it like this this doesn't make any sense like what weren't we paying premiums already like why do i have to pay 
more out of pocket. Like, uh, and, and this is why I call a premium a private sector tax, right? Like what's so different about a premium that you're paying every month to some unaccountable private insurance company than paying a tax to the government who's going to provide you with health care? We'll talk more specifically, I'm sure, about other examples mm-hmm. of other um, ways that other countries pay for health care. But functionally, like what's so different about it? Like uh, is our are, are premiums just more American because it's it's through the private sector? Like I don't really understand. It's you pay more in pre most Americans pay more in healthcare costs now in this system than they would under a single payer system. That's been studied before. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier that our outcomes are worse than a lot of these other uh, similar uh, industrialized countries. That's true. Um, well, hang on a second. Um, the G- our GDP healthcare spending is almost 20% right? Healthcare spending is almost 20% of our GDP, right? One out of every $5 that gets spent is on healthcare in this country. Um, let's talk about Canada. I believe their healthcare percent of GDP spending is about 11.5%. Um, they have functionally a single payer. Um, they have like private providers, but a single payer. It's like pretty much how I would describe Canada's system. Whereas um, the UK, they have a pure kind of national health health program, meaning it's a government payer, single payer, and the primary providers of healthcare are also government workers, also through the, pro- the public sector. And uh, the UK's spending on healthcare as a percentage of GDP is about 9.5%. And they also have consistently been recognized as one of the most efficient healthcare delivery uh, systems in the world. And this is a fully nationalized system, mind you. So like the closest thing we could possibly get to what you could describe as socialist healthcare is the NHS, the National Health System in the UK. They have the one of they have if one of the if not the most efficient healthcare systems, consistently rated uh, one of the best access to care, and wait times are a myth for most um, non-elective um, uh, non-elective things. Same in Canada. So, okay, let's talk about the UK because that, that was going to be my one of my points. Um, yeah. Okay, so the UK, like you mentioned, NHS. Um, I, I know a few people. I have friends in the UK. Uh, some of them live here. Some of them live there. Um, so... I mean, one one thing, one myth that I want to point out, too, is that if you have a national health care system, you have to do that. And that's it. And that's all you have. Right. You you are at the disposal of your country. You right? don't you don't have to. Um, right. About tr- about like um, eight to 10 percent of people in the UK go through the private system. It's it's very niche. There is a private healthcare sector in the UK. Mm-hmm. It's extremely niche, though. So. Um, only like 10% of people have private insurance. Uh, and mostly those are like rich people in London and about eight to 10% of people use private every, pretty much everybody else uses the NHS. So some of the, um, employers that, uh, you, if you're working in the UK, you can get, uh, just like here, you can get insurance, additional insurance mm-hmm. on top of the NHS. Um, and, and I think I, you know, I checked some of them out there around $30 a month, something like that. Um, and that gives you access to the private hospitals, uh, that puts you it literally, I mean, this website that I'm, I'm looking at, it says, uh, skip the wait time, you know, yeah. you skip the line basically. Um, and 
also, you do have that option. So the argument that is constantly made and something that was on the Instagram when we did some crowdsourcing, that was, it came up time and time again of the wait time. Um, and, and I mean, I personally know people who do have, have had wait times in Canada and in the UK. Um, I know somebody who had a, uh, an ortho problem and it was deemed, you know, not, not, an emergency and, and they waited a year uh, to get their surgery and it really did impact their life. I mean, it, it, it does happen, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but I, again, to your point, first of all, there are ways around that, right? If you want to pay this low amount for some extra private insurance, you have that option, right? Um, and then also it, when we're looking at infant mortality rate or something like that in this country, why do we think that that wait time is somehow worse? You know, I right. look at the problems we have here and, and it doesn't make sense to me. That's exactly what I was going to say. I mean, I had, I have a friend who developed Wegner's at, at like age 23 or 24. I guess I can't say wow. Wegner's cause he was a Nazi, I guess. Granulomatosis with polyangiitis. That's the smartest thing I'll say today. Um, oh, you're not, I didn't know about that, that it's like changed now. It's changed. Apparently it's changed. Well, I learned in med school is Wagner's and then apparently, yeah. you know, like, oh, we can't be using Nazi shit. I'm like, oh, I mean, I kind of, I oh, guess that's true. Okay. I, I probably would rather Fine. not also. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so now it's the, the other name that I'm not going to say again, but she developed this at a very young age. Um, and it's just this autoimmune vasculitis basically. And nobody could figure out what it was for the longest time. But anyways, um, she wow. waited nine months to see a rheumatologist. And by the way, they said she was fast tracked, uh, just for context. Um, uh-huh. when I was working at the Peds, and, and this is not some innocuous thing. Like her eyes were all red. She couldn't see. Obviously she's right. freaking the fuck out. Like what is going on with me? And she still had to wait about nine months. When I was working in the Peds emergency department, um, the usual wait times to see a Peds gastroenterologist is about four or five months. If you go through the ED, you kind of kind of get to skip the line that way. Uh, and some people know that, some people don't. Uh, and that's probably not everywhere, but at least where I am. Um, but yeah, the usual wait times are about four or five months. Um, try to see a psychiatrist where I grew up, about six or seven months. So mm-hmm. I, I don't really understand. Oh, by the way, go to the emergency department where I grew up. Uh, rural West Virginia, basically, um, you're going to be waiting in the emergency department to be seen for about four or five hours, no matter what time of day. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. So this mm-hmm. argument of, of uh, oh, you go to Canada, you have to wait forever for it. Like, it's a, it's a myth. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure there are instances. Nobody said that the any of these systems are perfect. Nobody said that this system is exactly what we need. What people like me say is, these systems have better outcomes, are more efficient, and pay way less. So why the fuck would we want not want to do something like that? Nobody's saying we have to do exactly that, but why don't we get to something closer to that? That's all why I'm saying. we try? Yes. Yeah. Rather try. than just like continue this. I mean, what's the definition of insanity? Um, insanity? Exactly. So we just keep yeah. doing this thing over and over Oh, you know what? Maybe someday the healthcare premiums will go down. Maybe, but maybe not. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It depends on the market. Mm-hmm. Something that's not accountable to anybody and we just have to hope and pray. I mean, do you see how like ridiculous this sounds like when you break the system down in these terms? It's just it's crazy that we it's learned helplessness. I'm sure you've heard this. It is learned helplessness because we put all of our trust 
in, in a market mechanism um, that is never going to be on our side because um, here's the secret. The health insurance premiums, as an example, they're always going to go up. Why is that? Because that benefits the health insurance companies. It's very, it's very simple. Um, mm-hmm. Prices, why is healthcare so expensive in the United States? That's one reason. The other reason is just that prices are higher. Why? Because um, hospitals can. They can just keep raising the prices. They don't care. Physicians, they just keep raising the prices for their services. Why? Because the insurer will pay. Why? Because they can just keep raising the premiums. Why? Because the patients don't have any power to fucking do anything about it. I mean, mm-hmm. it's really as simple as this. So, uh, so okay, Here, here's my, uh, my hot question for you about this. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I, I have a friend who's a doctor, NHS. He, he lives outside of London. Um, you are a doctor, right? I am a nurse. I participate in this system. Uh, New York City RNs, especially if they're union, we do okay salary-wise here. I mean, I, I really can't complain. Um, you know, and people, a lot of people have worked for that, but that's true. Um, physicians, I think it's reverse for you guys. It's it's worse here. It's better if you go, yeah. you know, outside the city. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just saturated. So, I, I think it's just the market's very saturated in the big cities. Yes. And there's a lot of PAs and NPs here yeah. too. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, my friend, he is part of that system. He actually makes less than I do. Um, and he has a roommate and he cannot live in the city of London where he works. I live in Manhattan. Um, so would you be willing to take a pay cut to see a different system? Yes. Personally, yes. Um, (laughs) a lot of other things would have to change too. Uh, you know, a lot of when we talk about socialism, Marxism, communism. These are, again, systems. These are not individual changes. Um, it's revamping an entire way of life, thinking of, think of it that way. So to say, would I take a pay cut to see a better system? Yes, but I'd also like to see the cost of living go down. I'd also mm-hmm. like to see uh, health insurance not exist uh, for people so that they're not paying thirty percent of 20 to 25% of their income on health insurance premiums. I'd like to see people living in cities not paying 30 to 40% of their income on housing. I'd like to see that. I'd like to see people not spend a lot of their income on food, uh, basic necessities. Like these are the things I'm talking about. Would I take a pay cut for this system? Yeah, but I also want to see a lot of other changes that are going to help people and myself too. Maybe it's a little bit selfish, but uh, if, if it helps society and I'm part of society, then it's going to help me, right? That's how I think about it. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah, we live in a society there's no way around that one. I'm sorry. I mean, unless you know how to like go off and live in the fucking woods. Good for you. I don't. So some people do. Some people do it. It, Go off king. Like good for you. That's not me though. So (laughs) get that garden. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) but if you can't and you're forced to participate in society like we are, um, then you might as well try to make society better. Uh, because if if society is better and you're in it, then you will probably be better. Um, Mm -hmm. so the, the question of taking less money for the system, yes. You also have to consider um, the other aspect, which is think of all of the loan repayments that doctors and nurses are paying back, right? Well, all students, right? Mm -hmm. So if you had, again, a more socialist turn, uh, if you want to dream up a system of what a socialist society would look like, it would be a society where... um, there were no student loans. You don't have to pay to get an education. You don't have to pay into a system 
uh, just to better yourself and to better society, because that's really what education is for ultimately. Like, why do you learn things? It's to better who you are, to gain knowledge, to help yourself, help others, help society. So why would you exclude people from a tract that improves society? Because that's really what um, college tuition being $20,000, $40,000 a year, that's what it creates. It creates a barrier to these things. And that's, that's stupid, honestly. Um, mm-hmm. Medical school being so expensive creates a barrier. And that's really stupid because what's going on now, we have a huge physician shortage that is people are estimating to reach about 100,000. There are about a million physicians in the United States. And they're projecting to be about 100,000 physicians short within the next 10 years, all because of this gatekeeping mechanism. It's pretty stupid, again. So um, a lot of other things would have to change um, for this system to make sense and to get buy-in, too. Um, And I think a lot of other doctors probably would take a pay cut if you said, hey, your loans don't exist or your loan repayments don't exist anymore. Like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Mm. Because think about why a lot of people go into these high paying specialties in the first place, like like plastics and derm and urology and shit like that. I'm not saying they don't like it, but a lot of the reason some people go into it is because it pays well. They can pay off their loans faster and then, you know, they can go and watch Fox News and live a bougie life. I'm like, that's good. Good for you. Um, so the way of life needs to change. You can't just say, what if this changed? Would you be in favor of this? A lot of things have to change at the same time. Yeah. Um, I mean, it sounds like, you know, you, you raised a question earlier. Um, you know, why don't we try, basically? Could we, could we at least try uh, to do something different? Why do we keep doing repetitive, the same system that doesn't work? It's been proven not to work, right? Um, I mean, I think you just answered that question. I mean, it would it would require an entire system overhaul. And that is very difficult and very scary. And I mean, it's never been done in this country before, right? So uh, to get everybody on board for that and and then also say, you know, I mean, the healthcare system that we have, it's been pieces slowly added over decades, you know, since the war, basically, right? So now we'd have to wipe all that away and, and start, from a brand new system. I mean, that's kind of why I'm assuming Obamacare sort of failed because they're, they're trying to fix a system that is just flawed from, from the beginning. Right. Um, so, I mean, I don't know, it, it does seem a little I, idealistic to me, to be honest with you. It, it's hard. It's daunting. Um, but that's, that's called revolutionary optimism. It's hoping that it happens, even though it probably won't. And that's okay. Um, I, I, I think these are the changes that need to happen based on what we just said, what we're doing now, it doesn't work. Um, There are these countries who are doing this better stuff and it's working better, not perfectly, but working better. So why don't we try to approach what they're doing, right? We go to a single payer, right? And, and, and I, I, the way that I think about healthcare is like the medical industrial complex, I guess, is through the lens of who pays for healthcare and who provides healthcare, right? So the payer if you want to talk about changing just the payer, that would be what like Medicare for all is, right? Because mm-hmm. you're not changing how it, medicine would be administered or provided, right? You'd still have private practice physicians. You'd still have private hospitals, for-profit hospitals, the nonprofits, blah, blah, blah. The, what would be different is that you wouldn't have this incredibly complex apparatus of health insurance companies that add about 30% of, to the cost of health insurance through administrative costs and things like that. 
Um, and, and it's proven to be a success in other countries if administered right and funded correctly. So why don't we go toward a system like that that has been shown to have success? And even if you look at it uh, in other terms, what, what we call a single payer is a monopsony, not a monopoly, but a monopsony. A monopoly is a single seller, right? A monopsony is a single payer. So think about all of these drug companies, all of these hospitals, all of these device companies, all of these entities that create or, or administer or provide healthcare in some way, right? Mm -hmm. When you have a single entity that's paying for these things, they have that power to say, this is what I'm paying for this drug. This is what I'm paying for this uh, MRI. This is what I'll pay for this procedure, right? Um, because if you don't take what we're paying, where are you going to go? There's no other payer. That's how you bring costs down. That That's the magic of single payer is that is if you want to control costs, you have to control the power that the payer has. Because right now, with all the individual insurance companies, all the individual payers, if this seller doesn't like it, they'll go to the next one. They'll get a better price. That's that's how Medicare is. Uh, that's how Medicare functions. They give a price. We will pay this for a hip. We will pay this mm -hmm. for this medication. If you don't like it, what the fuck are you going to do about it? Nothing. Mm -hmm. So imagine you expand that system to everybody. And imagine the power that that payer would have to bring costs down. I mean, if you truly want to bring costs down, it's not about, oh, doctors order too many tests. Like, yeah, maybe that's true. But there's also the uh, perspective of defensive medicine, which, <laughs> I mean, our legal system and... All I don't even want to get into that shit today. Yeah. Maybe maybe another it's time. But yeah, that maybe maybe a different episode if you want to come back. <laughs> that would be great. I mean, something for me to research and learn too. But like even setting that part aside, right? So um, so yeah, there's an easy way to bring costs down, and it's by the payer. Now the provider, um, that's a whole different story. Like making the government the provider of healthcare as well, like England has, like the UK has, mm -hmm. I find that to be a much more daunting and difficult task, getting back to what you were saying. You find it to be a little idealistic. Um, I find it to be very difficult as well, uh, getting support behind that. Because to me, Medicare for all, like single payer, is the centrist position. Whereas like an NHS, a national healthcare system, like the UK, that is like the principle where I think we should be positioned. And there's not even really anybody talking about that in America right now. Right. Not even like Bernie Sanders, AOC. Think of like the most progressive people you can. Nobody's really even talking about an NHS. No.